0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
1: Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here. A final half hour this afternoon. We get a few of other issues we'll uh, attend to. We'll get some more of your phone calls as well. But I want to talk about an interesting conversation that's been happening uh, around the Constitution. And obviously, amending the Constitution is a challenge. But here's an issue where uh, Alberta has cause to and where it feels like it's doable because our neighbors next door, Saskatchewan, did so. Okay, so this all concerns uh, an issue around Canadian Pacific Railway that goes way back to around the time that this country was founded and around the time that these two provinces were founded, 1905. A permanent exemption, permanent tax exemption granted to Canadian Pacific Railway. Now, Saskatchewan recently succeeded in getting rid of this tax exemption. And our next guest uh, is pushing for Alberta to do the same. So this has gone through the House of Commons and the Senate. So I want to get up to speed on, on where this was at and some more of the relevant background as we welcome to the program Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons joining us here this afternoon. Senator, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program.
2: Hello, Rob Robert. It's been a long time since it we've has. had a chat. I'm, it has. I'm delighted been too to long. be with you today. Well,
1: and I too am delighted. So that's that's a good way to start. Okay, so I want to get some of the background here, Paula. So what do people need to know about about this whole situation? All
2: right, so back in eighteen eighty. This is how far back yeah. you need to go. Back in 1880, Sir John A. Macdonald, the Prime Minister of Canada, was very keen on the idea of building a railway across the country to, to, to unite British Columbia with with eastern Canada. And this is at a time before Saskatchewan in Alberta existed. In fact, we just barely—the ink was barely dry on Treaty Seven uh, in southern Alberta. So uh, this was still all the area that had been known as Rupert's Land but the cpr was very leery about how much it would cost them to to go all in to build this rail line and so sir john A. mcdonald made them the sweetheart deal of all sweetheart deals he said that the cpr would never have to pay any kinds of taxes along the route of its main line through western canada and so cpr took the deal and the railroad was made and the last spike was hammered in and we became a country. But in 1905, when Alberta and Saskatchewan entered Confederation, the CPR was like, hey, hey, we had a deal in 1880. And so the government of the day in 1905 agreed that that clause would be included in the Alberta Act and the Saskatchewan Act when Alberta and Saskatchewan became part of Canada. And so ever since 1905, neither Alberta nor Saskatchewan uh, had the right, in theory, to, to charge taxes to the CPR along the route of the line. I, I want to be really clear. It's not, it's not that they're tax exempt in the whole province, all their operations. It's just along this line. And in 1966, the CPR and the federal government and the provinces came to some kind of gentleman's handshake agreement, and the CPR began paying taxes. And so everybody thought, okay, well, you know, it's a weird anomaly in the Constitution, but whatever, it doesn't seem to have any, any force and effect anymore. And then in 2008, CPR looked at some, at some court decisions and said, hey, you know what? We're tired of paying these taxes. And we looked back, and in the rules in 1880, it said we didn't have to pay them. And so in 2008, they sued the governments of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba and demanded the tax... demanded, like, you know, they wanted the money back that they'd already paid in Texas. Uh, they, you know, they sued back when Ed Stelmack was premier. So this mm-hmm. has been going on a long time. But they took the most aggressive court action in Saskatchewan because Saskatchewan had a higher tax regime and had collected more of their money. And so the government of Saskatchewan and the CPR have been in court fighting over this since 2008. And last week... Um, while nobody was paying much attention, it was the same day as the budget, um, we amended the Constitution. And we said that Saskatchewan no longer um, had to honor this tax exemption and that they didn't have to pay the back taxes. In fact, we were backdating the Constitution to, to 1966. And so Saskatchewan got its own special constitutional carve-out. And I thought to myself, standing in the Senate, well, that's very nice for Saskatchewan. But what about Alberta?
1: Right. So, so this wouldn't automatically apply to Alberta, then, would it? Nope.
2: This is this is a really weird thing. Um, so, you know, it, what happened was the province of Saskatchewan got mad, and their legislature unanimously passed a motion to amend the constitution to amend the Saskatchewan Act, and then the House of Commons unanimously passed the motion, and then it came to us in the Senate. And we didn't just rubber stamp it. We wanted to have quite a bit of debate about it, and so it was studied by our Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee. And there was, you know, uh, really quite thoughtful debate from all kinds of constitutional and historical perspectives. Uh, And in the end, the Senate agreed, though not unanimously, that it would support this amendment of the constitution, and then I had a hard time explaining to people because they didn't quite believe me. But they said, "But like, but it's not done." I said, "Yeah, it's done. It's done and dusted. The constitution is amended, and Saskatchewan um, Saskatchewan has this has this special status." But
1: wait, so it's a and that means Manitoba about, and
2: Alberta yeah. hanging. <laughs>
1: Doesn't the, the amending formula, yes, you need Parliament, the Senate, but what about you know, the, the point about having at least seven provinces representing uh, 50%? That's get- normal amendments. You right. are
2: quite right, Mr. Breckenridge. Normally, to amend the Constitution requires the consent of seven provinces representing at least 50% of Canada's population. But because of this constitutional quirk was only in the text of the Saskatchewan Act, they only needed the consent of Saskatchewan. So this left me in a weird position. I'm standing there thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All my, all my colleagues from Saskatchewan are cheering in the chamber, and I'm like, wait a minute, what about my province? And so technically, I could go back into the Senate when we resume sitting in, you know, in a week and a half, and I could bring my own motion for, for Alberta to also amend its constitution. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that it might be a bit cheeky Uh, of me to do that without checking to see what the province of Alberta actually wanted. And so I've been trying, uh, without any success thus far, to get someone from the Kenny government to speak to me about this. I'm hopeful that now that uh, that the media has kind of picked up this story, that maybe, I mean, they've been busy, they've had lots of other things to worry about, but I didn't want to, you know, I thought it would be impertinent for me as an independent senator to stand up and demand this constitutional change without checking in to make sure that we were all, you know, more or less on the same page on this issue.
1: Right. So in November of last year, as I understand that the Saskatchewan Legislature passed this motion. Now, was that was that a symbolic step? Is, it, is that a necessary no, first step? No. No.
2: Well, it's I, I, it's not symbolic because in order to make this work, you need to have the consent of the province, the House of Commons, and then finally the Senate. Okay. Now you can start backwards. Like I mean, I could. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not just. I'm not just blowing smoke here like a like a steam engine i could literally come into the senate of canada um you know it's it, two weeks from tuesday and and put this motion on the order paper and we could debate it in the senate and then if we passed it in the senate which presumably we would since we just did it for saskatchewan we would then send it to the house of commons but it still would require the consent of alberta so you know i i personally paula simon's unelected senator cannot just single-handedly rewrite the Constitution, no. but I really would like to start a discussion uh, to see if this is something that Albertans want to do, because the reason this works so well for Saskatchewan is that every single Saskatchewan MLA, every single Saskatchewan MP, and every single Saskatchewan senator acted in, a, you know, in agreement and in concert. Right. So it would be nice if we could get that kind of, that kind of thinking going here.
1: I think. Well, let me read. There was apparently a a statement released by a spokesperson for Alberta's finance minister that that reads as follows. Quote, we are pleased to see that their motions have been successfully passed in the House and the Senate. Of course, we welcome a meeting with Senator Simons to discuss Alberta's options.
2: I I was delighted to read that today. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, as I say, I mean, I don't I don't wish to be I don't wish to be rude about this, but they have been a bit busy over in the premier's office the last little while they have had other things on their plate and you know this lawsuit in alberta is a very queer quirky thing right because it was filed when stelmack was premier so that's ed stelmack allison redford uh uh jim uh, dave hancock jim prentice rachel notley uh, jason kenney we had a lot of We've had a lot of different governments, a lot of different premiers, while this lawsuit has been active, and I was able to speak on background with the with people from Alberta Justice who've been working on this lawsuit. Um, and I mean, this is still a, this is still a live thing, so. You just haven't ever had a lot of publicity in Alberta. When I looked back, because I was embarrassed, having been a journalist in 2008, that I'd somehow forgotten that this lawsuit had been filed. But there was scarcely any press coverage of it at the time. And it's kind of been, I think everybody was waiting to see the outcome of what would happen in Saskatchewan. And I think everybody here has kind of been holding their fire, waiting to see what would happen. But now that it's happened... Uh, I wanted to. I just wanted to draw this to people's attention so that we could have a discussion amongst ourselves as Albertans. You know, th- there is an argument to be made, and the CPR will certainly make this argument, that they are an Alberta-based company, they're based in Calgary, they pay lots of other taxes, mm-hmm. and that they had a deal in 1880. They signed an agreement, and that it's, you know, dirty pool to change the rules now. And I think that's, you know, I don't agree, but I think that's a perfectly legitimate argument. Uh, I think the counter to that is that deal was not made by Albertans. That deal was made by Ottawa before we were even a province. And I don't think it's right for Alberta to have second-class status in the Constitution. Other provinces, you know, it, there was no such tax exemption in British Columbia. There was no such tax exemption in Ontario, and the CP line goes through those provinces. So why should Albertans be subsidizing everybody all these years later?
1: Right. And I mean, there's real money at stake here. I mean, Saskatchewan says, yes, there's there's millions of dollars in potential tax revenue here.
2: Well, Saskatchewan, I mean, Saskatchewan was on the hook to pay back potentially between 300 and 400 million dollars. In Alberta, it was always going to be less because we had lower taxes to start with. I think in Alberta, the most we would have been on the hook for was between 35 and 50 million dollars. So really, in terms of CP's revenues and in terms of Alberta's revenues, it's not that large an amount. You know, we, we oughtn't to get carried away with the idea that somehow if we make CP pay um, or if we, you know, refuse to pay the, the amount that they're claiming that, that it's because they, they're only going back six years. They're not going back to 1966 because of a statute of limitations. So, you know, the question at this point in Alberta, it really isn't the money. It's the principle. Alberta came into confederation in nineteen o five as a second class province we didn't have jurisdiction over our natural resources and we did and we had this tax we had this tax exemption to which we never agreed it's clearly provincial jurisdiction and I think it's an anachronism in two thousand and twenty two that we should still be paying for Sir John a mcdonald's crony capitalism you know a deal that Sir John a made for his own political interests that right. you know it's it's 2022. The CPR is a big multinational company now with offices, you know, in the United States and routes that run right into Mexico. And ought we to still be stuck in this kind of colonial relationship where Alberta is is subsidizing, you know, a, a deal made in 1880? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable question, uh, and we'll leave it on that. We'll see where this all goes from here. We'll be watching with some interest. Uh, Paula Simons, great to have you with us here. Thanks so much for joining us It was us today.
2: lovely to be back, Rob. I hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Likewise. All the best. Take care. That is uh, Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons, who says, you know what? I'm willing to, to present this motion in the Senate. Let's get the ball rolling on Alberta's cause here. All right, welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Thursday afternoon as we head into the Easter long weekend. Our number 403-974-8255. So uh, this week, I mean, it's pretty clear the Bank of Canada is getting more aggressive and trying to tackle inflation. Uh, it raised its uh, benchmark rate uh, a little while ago by a quarter of a basis point. This week, they uh, raised it by 50 basis points. That rate is now up to 1%. Uh, and by all indications, uh, they're, they're not done. You know, this may get to two to or higher in the next uh, couple of months here as the bank uh, attempts to wane in inflation. Now, they've taken other steps as well. Late last year, uh, they began winding down their quantitative easing program, which was meant to facilitate government borrowing, to reduce the cost of that government borrowing, which was obviously pandemic-specific, pandemic-related borrowing. And obviously, the pandemic has been a big factor in in maybe all of this, both in terms of the amount of borrowing and spending the governments have been doing and also some of the supply chain issues Uh, that have created uh, product shortages. So by juicing demand and uh, affecting supply, that's all adding up to higher prices, i.e. inflation. But what else is going on here? Uh, And and who suffers the most from inflation? Who benefits from inflation? Uh, So a very timely uh, new report from the Fraser Institute called A Primer on Inflation, sort of a big-picture look at all of this. Joining us uh, to talk more about the issue is uh, the author of this paper. He's a professor emeritus at Western Washington University and a resident scholar at the Fraser Institute. Stephen Globerman joining us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Globerman, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Thank you, Rob. Nice to be here.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, is is anything that you're seeing in terms of the Bank of Canada's response, the the actual uh, consumer price index, where, where it seems stuck at, is any of this surprising to you?
0: No, I think you summarized the, the short-run picture very well. We had a combination of supply chain disruptions, partly related to COVID, now partly related to the geopolitical developments in Ukraine, and, and a surge in demand related to government uh, uh, income transfers to uh, to uh, deal with the uh, what was expected to be a major unemployment problem with COVID, with shutdowns, etc., and a lot of that spending financed by the Bank of Canada by buying government bonds directly. So that short-run picture you summarize quite well. Um, The point that we, perhaps the value-added point that we make in the primer is that um, we see the the pressures uh, for uh, sustained inflation to be longer run, i.e., even if Um, uh, the Bank of Canada does raise interest rates and continues to, as you suggest, and government transfer payments uh, uh, slow down, and there's quantitative tightening. That is, the Bank of Canada uh, does not buy the maturing debt of the government, even if all that is true and happens. Uh, We think there are some significant features on the supply side that, will continue to um, to exacerbate inflationary problems, and if I may, I can just briefly yeah, run through them. Mm-hmm. One is demographics. Um, this is no big secret. The labor force is aging. Uh, we have accelerating retirements from the labor force, so all other things the same. That's going to um, reduce the growth of what, what economists call potential output. Uh, the amount of output that can be produced that can accommodate a given level of demand without causing inflation pressures. We also have um, what appears to be certainly a slowdown, if not even a reversal, in international trade and investment related to things that I think your listeners are familiar with, uh, geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and Canada and China. Uh, now, of course, the uh, the issue of... Um, Sanctions on Russia and and possibly uh, possibly China and India if if uh, things really deteriorate in that dimension um, and and just a general concern on the part of governments about uh, outsourcing uh, key uh, commodities and and products such as pharmaceuticals uh, so so international trade and particularly. The, what, the the exports from China that grew dramatically over the period of the, say, from 1980 onward, that that brought a lot of downward pressure on prices, and that may be at an end. And then the third thing I would mention is that clearly there's a commitment on the part of Western governments to move away from carbon fuels towards green energy and whatever one feels about the uh, the uh, the appropriateness of that particular policy uh, thrust. Um, it, it is going to raise costs in the short run, certainly over the foreseeable future. Uh, green energy is going to be expensive to produce. It's going to be slow to roll out, mm-hmm. and and to the extent that we're making the use of carbon fuels more difficult or more expensive, that's a longer run. Uh, pressure on inflation. So I think that's the main kind of value added of the study. Right.
1: Uh, those are interesting points. Uh, getting back to, you know, the role of, of monetary policy, or at least maybe how monetary policy coexists with fiscal policy and whether one drives the other, because, uh, you know, the quantitative easing, the low interest rates was about facilitating government borrowing, making that that borrowing, I guess, as as cheap as possible. So is, is that a case of fiscal policy driving the monetary policies? Is it the reverse? How do we explain that relationship?
0: Well, it's a complicated relationship because, in principle, um, the, the, the the governor of the Bank of Canada, of course, reports to the Prime Minister's Office, uh, but but there is a, a supposedly anyway a concordance in views, and uh, in December of this. Past year, 2021, the bank and the and the and the government uh, set out what is supposed to be a roadmap for monetary policy, where the bank is now not just concerned with inflation but with uh, employment as well. Um, My sense is that the Bank of Canada and the government of Canada viewed the world pretty similarly at the start of the COVID epidemic. Uh, Both were quite concerned that this could be a major catastrophe uh, for for the economy, and I I don't think it took a lot of arm-twisting on the part of the federal government to get the bank to engage in quantitative easing, indeed to in, to buy more than half of the bonds that were issued by the government. I, I don't think that took much arm-twisting. Right. Going forward, there might be more conflict.
1: Well, and, and do we almost have monetary and policy and fiscal policy right now operating... You know, sort of pulling in opposite directions. The Bank of Canada seems pretty aggressive in tackling inflation. I'm not so sure that that fiscal policy is is yet designed to curb inflation. Well,
0: uh, you, you, you're right that the Bank of Canada and and other central banks, of course, as well, are 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 starting to initiate uh, a tightening of credit conditions. Whether and how aggressively that will continue i think are open questions um there are certainly some uh, uh economists who are expressing concern that the bank of canada might move too fast too far uh, as well as uh, critics of the fed who are m- raising the same concerns um if we take Tiff macklem at his word uh he's not done but we really don't know what the end game is for the bank of canada uh and there's a hint in the study the primer uh that um as i mentioned just a moment ago there could be some serious tension between the federal government and the bank of canada because as you say the federal government even though the 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 latest budget suggests certainly some slowdown in the rate of growth of government expenditures it is not by any means a a um, a tight uh, federal budget there's still increased spending go, going to happen and uh, so we'll wait and see uh, it's it's just tough to predict
1: right there's also you know a related point that should be noted and you pointed out in in this report that you know in, in a lot of ways governments actually benefit from inflation don't they
0: yes on balance they do benefit and and they're one of the uh, uh clearer beneficiaries um and, and and in one way uh the benefit is that the outstanding government debt and the ongoing interest payments to service the debt is, uh, is is worth less in purchasing power when there's inflation um and so that's a wealth transfer from all the investors who are holding government bonds to the government itself not just the federal government but provincial and local governments um And the other way is uh, some portions of the tax base are not indexed to inflation, in particular um, capital gains taxes uh, related to uh, assets that go up in value with inflation, but may not go up faster than the rate of inflation. So the holder of the asset is not in any sense getting wealthier after and after inflation terms, but the government is going to get uh, more taxes from those holders of assets. So... They are beneficiaries, but by the same token, one must say that anyone who's holding a mortgage, I'm sorry, is a mortgage a mortgagee, that is, has a mortgage on a house, is watching their house values go up while the real value of their mortgages are going down. So government is not the only beneficiary, but it's pretty clearly a beneficiary.
1: Right. And, and, you know, as you say, I mean, there, there are those who I mean, the impact is different, I suppose, you know, depending on on all kinds of different factors. So who who suffers the most then from this, would you say?
0: Well, the people who suffer the most are people who are and, and people who have um, jobs that um, whose wages are not directly or indirectly index to inflation. So these are going to be generally people who don't have um, uh, skills in scarce supply uh, where the market is going to bring their wages up uh, simply because businesses are finding it hard to, re- to replace those, those particular skills. Um, people, as I mentioned, who, who have real assets uh, uh, whose value goes up in inflation are at least getting some protection lower income families who do not own real estate, who do not own equities that go up in value, they're the ones who are going to be hurt. So the, you know, the profile of the person who's really hurt by inflation is um, an, an, a worker with limited bargaining power in, in the labor market and without enough wealth to really protect themselves with inflation-adjusting assets.
1: So between the, the challenge of curbing these, these high levels of inflation and, and maybe the federal government not being 100% in on that fight, I mean, how optimistic are you that we're going to see much difference through this year into next year?
0: Well, I think we're going to see some difference, uh, certainly over the next year to year and a half. I, I think we will see uh, a peaking of inflation. I, I can't predict the month, but, but given within that time frame of a year to a year and a half, I think we would see inflation in Canada being more down to the 35 to 4% rate than the 5 to 6% rate it currently is running at. Um, and uh, what happens after that is, is really a functioning part of what we were talking about a moment ago, how how sustained the Bank of Canada's tightening is. But as I said before, I think that we're facing longer-run inflationary pressures that we have not faced for 40 years. And the challenge for the Bank of Canada, and indeed for the federal government, is to address those longer-run factors. For example, um, there's very little that's being done by the federal government, including, I would say, in the latest budget, that really addresses... Um, increasing the productivity of the economy, which in turn increases potential output, which eases some of the inflationary pressures. Um, And and until the government really makes that a priority to improve productivity growth in the country, the Bank of Canada is going to be in a very, very tight spot uh, because all of the burden is going to be on monetary policy to control inflation. And Um, one can't be overly optimistic that years of tight money are going to be sustainable by Canadians, let alone by the federal government.
1: Very interesting. Well, much more. It's called a primer on inflation, FraserInstitute.org. Stephen Globerman, thanks so much for joining us here today. appreciate the insight. You're welcome. All the best. Uh, That is Stephen Globerman, resident scholar at the Fraser Institute and uh, professor emeritus at Western Washington University. So kind of an overview of what drives inflation, you know, what causes it, the implications, the consequences, who benefits, who suffers the most, you know, the impact of monetary policy, the impact of fiscal policy, all of that. So again, FraserInstitute.org. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.
2: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.